0: Welcome to the Pracademics podcast, where we aim to keep you informed, connected, and inspired by translating academic research into the real world to help you in your work with children, young people, and families. This podcast will be recorded on the land traditionally owned by the Turrbal and Yuggera Nations, as well as the Yugambeh Peoples. So we pay our respect to the traditional owners of these lands as well as the emerging community leaders around Australia. My name is Dr Chelsea Leach and I will be the very first host for our very first episode and talking about one of my favourite pieces of research, which was published in the Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry in 2016 by Martin Teacher and Jacqueline Sampson. So it's an annual research review. It looked at the enduring neurobiological effects of childhood abuse and neglect. So. There's a lot of detail in this paper and it's one to kind of break down and process slowly, I think, to really understand it. So I'll do my best at talking you through it. They hypothesize at the beginning of the paper before they start doing the research review that most psychopathology may actually emerge due to the mismatch between the world the brain was modified to survive in, where there has been early childhood maltreatment, there's certain survival skills that are needed. So the brain develops those survival skills or adapts to that risky environment. But then the brain might find itself in a completely different world during subsequent developmental stages. So when you go to school, it could be a very different environment to uh, a traumatic home life, or if you're then taken into care, the types of experiences that you have, or just in the adult world as well. That's the hypothesis they had that they wanted to explore. And what they did is they looked at the recent research on the neurobiological impacts across seven different areas. So they wanted to understand what's the impact of trauma on the brain structure and the function of the brain. So when we talk about brain structure, we're thinking about the different parts of the brain that you can um, pull out and you don't wanna do that because that would be quite damaging, but uh, it might be areas like the hippocampus is a brain structure, Or uh, the amygdala and they're some of the brain structures we will be talking about and also the brain this idea of the brain functioning is how all these different structures interact with each other and how they work together so they wanted to understand the impact both on the structure but as well as how the, the systems function as a whole they wanted to understand if the different types of maltreatment may have differential impacts on the outcomes And they also wanted to look at whether the age at which the abuse occurred or the trauma occurred had a differential impact on the psychopathology later in life. And related to that was the timing of the abuse and the brain changes that happen as a consequence of the timing of the abuse. The fifth thing that they were looking at was whether there were any gender differences. And the sixth was at this idea of brain damage that occurs as a consequence of trauma, or is it in fact brain adaptation that occurs? So this is an important way when we're thinking about how we conceptualize the impact of trauma. I know that in my private practice, I like to explain the impact of trauma as a survival mechanism and that your brain adapted to survive in that scenario and that is awesome and that's exactly what it was built and designed to do but now it's stuck in that mode and we need to help it adapt to the new world that you're in where you don't need those skills anymore and you need to kind of de-implement the skills that it attached and develop some new skills that will help you more in the new environment that you're in it just seems like a much more strengths-based way to talk about the impact of trauma with clients that are already probably feeling a lot of uh, shame around the experiences that they have so the purpose of this paper is to investigate whether that's in in fact an accurate representation of what's happening when the brain adapts or is damaged by trauma and finally they wanted to understand what's the relationship between experiencing trauma and psychiatric illness so they started off by looking at some different structures in the brain and understanding the impact of trauma on those different structures. So one of the structures that they looked at that I spoke about was the hippocampus. So the hippocampus is a little structure that's actually located in our temporal lobes. So your temporal lobe is kind of attached to the side of your head around where your ear is. And there's actually two hippocampi, one that's on the left and one on the right and they're integrated with the limbic system and so what that means is that the hippocampus is integral to processing emotions and the emotional side of memories as well as the auditory visual components of the memories and um, the role of the hippocampus and short-term memory when i'm working with private practice clients is i'll usually ask them what did you have for dinner last night what did you have for dinner you know sunday night three weeks ago and usually they can't remember or even sunday night you know A week ago and I explained that that's a good example of short-term memory so you can remember things that you know have happened over the last couple of days generally you've got you've got the detail there but over time your brain realizes that that level of detail is irrelevant and so those memories will kind of be we think essentially deleted but the memories that are more important so an example might be you know do you remember what you ate on your 10th birthday I remember what I ate. I ate a chocolate house that my auntie had made for me, which was amazing. And so obviously my brain thought that that was a pretty important memory. And so retained it and put it in the long-term memory. as like a really great example. Similarly you might remember you know the food that you had on your wedding day or you know your favorite meal in a really fancy restaurant that you've been to. The role of the hippocampus is to kind of work out what part of this information is important and what part of this information is not and the important stuff goes into long-term memory. So that's a bit of the role of the hippocampus. So what about trauma? So we know that adults with a history of maltreatment have a smaller hippocampi. Females in particular may be less vulnerable to that reduction due to the neuroprotective effect of estrogen. Interestingly, the timing of the maltreatment has an impact on hippocampus. So if the maltreatment occurs before the child is in adolescence, then it's more likely to impact the hippocampus. Firstly, if the maltreatment occurs when the young person is in adolescence, then it's more likely to impact the prefrontal cortex and less likely to impact the hippocampus. And this may be because there's a critical growth phase um, that's occurring earlier in childhood than in adolescence. The hippocampus structures finish forming and that's the time when the prefrontal lobe is forming. There's some indication that borderline personality disorder might be associated with a smaller right hippocampus So that's something else to keep in mind that it's actually hippocampi because you've got a left and a right one. And what we find when we get into the granular detail of these things is sometimes the impact on the structure happens more on one side than the other. And finally, maltreatment appears to impact hippocampi life development in participants, both with and without psychiatric disorders. So when we're trying to understand the impact or the link between maltreatment and psychiatric disorders, While maltreatment has an impact on the hippocampi, it appears that those people then develop psychiatric disorders later in life. In some cases, they don't. So some people are able to live lives without a psychiatric disorder in spite of the fact that they have a smaller hippocampi from maltreatment. So the next little structure that's quite important with trauma is the amygdala. So the amygdala, which I like to say, um, is what we call call kind of the smoke detector in your brain or Bessel van der Kolk, I think um, gave the example of it being like the smoke detector. So its role is to detect threat quickly and immediately and activate the systems to respond to that threat. So it actually sends the message in two directions. One is to go, straight back down through your brain stems to get your adrenal glands going, get you in that fight or flight mode. And the other direction is it sends some information into the prefrontal cortex um, and through a a much slower loop to kind of say, is this something we need to be scared of? So similar to when your smoke detector goes off, the first thing you do is look around to ascertain whether um, there is a fire. And so that's your kind of fight or flight mode. And then when you realize that there's no fire, then you take steps to quieten your smoke detector so that might be madly waving it with a tea towel because it's gone off um, to who's cooking a steak that happens to me a lot or um, you know you have to find a chair to stand on to press the button but in any case you really can't function until you turn the damn thing off and that's kind of what it's like with your amygdala so once you ascertain that it's not a threat, then your brain has to do some work with the rest of your body to calm it down and kind of switch off that really loud noise that's going off. What we know about the amygdala is that it grows to peak volume between 9 to 12 years. So that's like growing in size. And then it does this thing called pruning, which is where your brain develops really effective pathways when it's pruning. So that happens after the 9 to 12 years. So early maltreatment seems to increase the volume of the amygdala. So it means if you're constantly under threat, it's like your brain's like, well, we need smoke alarms everywhere. This is, you know, really um, dangerous kind of scenario. So let's get the more the merrier. But earlier exposure makes the amygdala sensitive. So it's bigger. So then if you also experience later exposure, it appears to decrease the volume of amygdala, perhaps because of the way that it's being pruned so that's a long way of saying that trauma will impact the amygdala's size but the timing of the trauma is really important what we do know with young people is that they do seem to be hypersensitive to threat and risk if they've had a history of maltreatment and this is likely due to their amygdala firing more So the other part of the brain that they looked at is the cerebral cortex. So your cerebral cortex includes your prefrontal lobe, which is the part right above your eyes, I guess. And the research indicates that the impact of trauma is most between infancy and early childhood and then late adolescence and early adulthood. And the reason for this appears to be because your brain is, again, developing A lot in the early between infancy and early childhood obviously Um, but that's more about developing mass whereas in late adolescence and early adulthood this is where you're really focusing on the pruning and being more efficient so if you're experiencing maltreatment or trauma during these periods of time it seems the research indicates that there's a greater impact on those areas of the brain than if you experience the same trauma at other times of your life and this is why I hate the ACEs study because it doesn't pay attention to any of these things. But that's another podcast for you. So what does this impact? It essentially impacts decision-making, emotion regulation, anticipatory control, and inhibitory control. So anticipatory control is where you are anticipating a goal that's coming and you um, are managing yourself around that to ensure that you obtain that goal whereas inhibitory control is where you are trying to inhibit um, impulses that might be coming up from the limbic system so for example boxes have excellent inhibitory control they might go into the ring and they're Limbic system is, you know, all fired up because they're about to get hit, and their prefrontal cortex has to work really hard to inhibit a lot of those fear responses so that they can keep their mind on the game plan. Uh, And that's probably a common thing across many sports. And in fact, interesting thing to note is that Nelson Mandela attributes much of his resilience and strength and I would say inhibitory control to uh, learning boxing and the skills that he learned through that. So there you go. So there's a couple of other areas that they looked at in this research. The corpus callosum is reduced by maltreatment so that's the part that runs right down the middle of your brain between the two hemispheres to help them communicate and so interestingly it's reduced in maltreatment and in fact boys may be twice as vulnerable to the impact of that than girls there's a few other areas uh, like the striatum and the cerebellum that we're not really sure about the impact of trauma at this time or not in 2016. So now the article starts to get really interesting where they looked at the links between specific types of maltreatment. So they found that verbal abuse was associated with reduction of the left auditory cortex and the language pathways. So it's almost like if you're getting verbally abused, that part of your brain just doesn't really want to develop and understand what's happening as much. So it just kind of turns the noise down on all of that verbal abuse in a similar way, witnessing domestic violence was associated with reductions in the visual cortex and visual emotional processing pathway. So again, the brain is kind of overwhelmed by what it's seen. So it's just kind of trying to turn the volume down on that a little bit. And childhood sexual abuse was associated with Reductions in the visual cortex for facial recognition and the somatosensory cortex in processing tactile information from the genitals. I mean, this is amazing, right, that the brain is responding to these really traumatic situations by just trying to turn down how much it actually impacts you. Of course, though, this means that when you're no longer in that situation, that impact continues because this is happening at critical periods of development for children. And so that's kind of how their brain develops and adapts. But then when they get into a schooling environment where, in fact, auditory cortex and language pathways are incredibly important, they're less able to process that kind of thing. In a similar way, I really wonder about... For children that have witnessed domestic violence, if they've got a reduced ability to process visual emotional information, then what does that mean about their capacity for empathy and their understanding of the impact of their actions on others? And we certainly see that there can be links between exposure to domestic violence in childhood and engaging in adolescent and adult family violence in adulthood. So it's a very, very interesting findings within this research. So they believe that it does appear that the brain's adapting to the trauma by shielding the child from having to process it. But as I said, this obviously has later implications for things like verbal comprehension, visual recall, sexual functioning as well, and the emotional response to witnessing events. So what can we conclude? We can conclude that maltreatments associated with an increase in that threat detection system. So you've got the fire alarm is more sensitive, more likely to go off. But interestingly, while there's an increased response in this non-conscious subcortical threat pathway, so the amygdala sending those messages through, there's a decreased response time in the conscious cortical pathway So when I described earlier that the the amygdala sends the message in two directions, one goes down into your body to get ready for that fight or flight, and one goes in through your prefrontal cortex to kind of process what it's seeing. So the impact of maltreatment means that the information going down into your body happens quicker, but the information processing through your prefrontal cortex happens slower. And so for kids that seem really reactive and not able to adapt to or read social cues and situations, that explains how maltreatment has impacted those two pathways, making it very difficult for them. Interesting, there's also a reduced response in the reward anticipation pathway. So what that means is when we're trying to manage behavior with setting up kind of reward contingencies and these kids aren't responding to that, that's why this pathway has been impacted by the maltreatment, which means that they don't have as good anticipatory control. And so they won't be as responsive to, to the goal setting and the rewards and contingency plans. So, lastly, the overall neuronal networks that are central for maltreated individuals focus on self referential thinking, self centered mental imagery, interoception, and emotion. So, it means that their neuronal networks are wired for survival around these self focused areas. So, this may mean that there's a decreased ability to regulate their emotions and attribute thoughts and intentions to others. So overall, this is going to have a huge impact on their capacity for social relationships. And the reason for this is that they have less ability to regulate their own emotions. They have a decreased ability to attribute the thoughts and intentions of others. You often hear of the theory of mind, being able to see things from others' perspectives or understand what others might be thinking. That's been massively reduced. And they also have a decreased ability to be mindful of themselves in that social context. So add to that, that they've got an increased experience of internal emotions and cravings, a tendency to think about themselves and, a tendency to use self-centered imagery to cope so naturally that's going to have a huge impact on how they interact with the rest of the world and when they are in pro-social environments they will appear to be the more self-centered antisocial young person that doesn't res- respond to the boundary setting and the goal setting that you see other children and young people respond to so it indicates that maybe we need to think of different ways to work with young people that had been impacted by maltreatment and 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 in particular, we need to understand the timing of the maltreatment. That's my summary of that amazing piece of research. And I'm interested in your thoughts on that. If you think that that rings true for the practice that you've experienced, for the young people that you've worked with. So if you do want to connect with us, you can tweet at us at Pracademics Inc. Or comment on our Instagram post around this story at Pracademics. Or of course, we're also on Facebook. And look forward to telling you why I hate aces in our next podcast. So thank you for listening to the Pracademics podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, leave a comment, leave a rating and help drive the algorithm so that other people can be informed, connected and inspired in their work with children and young people or recommend it to a colleague that you think might enjoy it as well. And credit to our in-house Pracademics composer, Matt Schrader, for supplying the music.